0: Welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Richard Friedman and I'm an associate in the team. I have with me Parvis Ghani, an employment partner in the Stevenson Harwood International Employment Group. Today we will discuss the issue of sexual harassment, which has had significant press coverage following the various revelations concerning Harvey Weinstein a recent survey conducted by Radio 5 Live found that 37% of the 2031 British adults surveyed had experienced sexual harassment at work or a place of study. Even more alarming, over half of the women surveyed, 53%, say that they had experienced sexual harassment in the place of work or study. Against this background, many commentators have argued that the current legal framework has significant shortcomings and does not offer employees the protection required. As a result... There have been calls for greater legal protection for women in the workplace, with the government's Women and Equalities Committee launching an inquiry into sexual harassment earlier this year. In this podcast, we're going to look at the following. The legal definition of sexual harassment. What steps employers should take to prevent sexual harassment. The issue of vicarious liability and harassment. And the validity of non-disclosure agreements or confidentiality clauses in the context of a sexual harassment claim. Parvis, let's start with the legal definition of sexual
1: harassment. How is this defined in the law? Thanks Richard. So it's the Equality Act we're looking at here which governs this area and it contains two separate definitions of harassment. The first, which can be related to any protected characteristic, including sex, is where a person engages in unwanted conduct related to a relevant protected characteristic which has the purpose or effect of, number one, violating the other person's dignity, or number two, creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for that other person. Now, in addition, there is a separate and further type of harassment under the Equality Act where a person engages in unwanted conduct of a sexual nature and which has the purpose or effect of creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment. It is this second type of harassment which is particularly topical at the present.
0: Thanks, Parvis. We can see from those definitions that the legal test for harassment looks at purpose and effect. There is both a subjective and objective element to this test. So the individual being subjected to the conduct has to feel that this has the effect of creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for them, but it's also necessary for such conduct to be reasonably viewed as having that alleged purpose or effect. So objectively speaking, the conduct must be seen to be having that purpose or effect. This is built into the definition to weed out cases where individuals are oversensitive to comments or conduct by colleagues. As we've mentioned, Harassment of a sexual nature is very topical at present. What action would you advise employers to take to prevent harassment from taking place?
1: So, even if there is no evidence of sexual harassment being an issue in the workplace, it is advisable for employers to take action so that it remains this way. Now, I would say there are three steps I would advise employers to take, which I would regard as fairly obvious, but I think it's worth reiterating. Now, firstly... Conduct training with your employees. It's an easy way to explain to employees what can constitute sexual harassment. Employees should be reminded that what they may view as banter or harmless comments may not be interpreted the same way by others. Employees should also be reminded that they can be personally liable for acts of harassment. Now, we find that this prospect of personal liability often focuses the mind. Managers and HR should also be given training on how such complaints should be dealt with and what support should be offered to the employee in question. Second, make sure anti-discrimination and harassment policies are in place, kept up to date and readily available to all of your staff. Thirdly, ensure that any complaints are taken seriously and investigated without delay and in accordance with your relevant policy. I think culture is crucial here and I would say this is really the key to preventing harassment from taking place. It's important that a culture is established where employees are encouraged and feel as comfortable as possible to report issues. It will be very difficult to establish this culture if complaints are not dealt with effectively. Now, as well as helping prevent any instances of sexual harassment, there are also additional advantages to an employer in taking the positive action, which I've just mentioned, which I'll speak about later.
0: Thanks, Parvis. It's well known that employers can be held vicariously liable for its employees' acts of sexual harassment. There have been some developments on vicarious liability in other areas of employment law. Do you think that they could have an effect on what acts of sexual harassment a court may be willing to
1: find an employer vicariously liable for? Uh, Yes, I do. Now, whilst not related to harassment or discrimination... The decision in the recent case of various claimants and Morrison's supermarket is quite an interesting one on the question of vicarious liability. Now, very briefly, in this case, Morrison's were held to be vicariously liable for the actions of an employee who uploaded significant data in relation to Morrison's employees, even though Morrison's were not aware of the employee's actions and had taken some steps to prevent an employee being able to do what this employee had done. Whilst this case is not related to harassment as such, it does show the direction of travel from the courts on the point of vicarious liability. Now similarly, it's been well established for a number of years that employers can be vicariously liable for actions of their staff outside the office if the event is still work-related. The well-trodden example being here the behaviour at a Christmas party. Now, however, we are now seeing courts take a step further and considering whether employers should be vicariously liable for the behavior of one of their employees to another completely outside the work environment. So, for example, where harassment takes place on an employee's social media platform it may not obviously be in the course of employment and therefore may be difficult to see how an employer may be vicariously liable for such behavior. There is, however, case law where harassment is taking place on social media for which the employer was vicariously liable. Now my view is that it will become more and more difficult for an employer to successfully argue that they are not vicariously liable for the actions of their employees. So it's therefore now more important than ever for employees to consider what they can do to prevent and protect their employees from sexual harassment.
0: Thanks Parvis. What if an employer does take significant steps to prevent sexual harassment taking place in the course of work? In those circumstances, is there any way it can avoid liability if
1: sexual harassment takes place anyway? Um, Richard, the short answer is yes. Um, The Equality Act does provide an employer with a statutory defence to allegations of harassment. Now, to use this defence successfully, an employer has to show that it took all reasonable steps to prevent the harassment from occurring in the course of work. For obvious reasons, this is very frequently referred to as the reasonable steps defence. Now, for an employer to be able to use this defence successfully, they will need to be able to point to significant evidence of what steps they have taken to prevent the harassment from occurring. Now, this is one of the additional advantages of training and educating your employees on sexual harassment, which I referred to earlier. Now, when considering whether to run this defense, there are, what I would say, three key points for an employer to consider. Now, first, if you do not run this defense, could you be seen to be supporting and defending the alleged perpetrators of the sexual harassment? Hence, there is a reputational issue that needs to be considered. Secondly, internal reputational considerations need to be borne in mind. Now, this needs to be looked at from both sides – fellow employees may see an employer supporting the alleged perpetrator as not taking allegations of sexual harassment seriously. On the flip side, if the allegations are not well-founded or you have concerns about the veracity of the allegations made, then if you do run the reasonable steps defence, you effectively leave the alleged offending employee to fend for themselves. This is likely to cause irreparable damage to the relationship between the employer and the employee and could also adversely affect relationships with other staff. Thirdly, Are there any commercial considerations which may influence the company's decision on whether to run this defence? So, for example, how the employer responds to these allegations have an effect on relationships with, say, for example, their customers or clients. Now, coming to a conclusion on these points is often tricky as there will be almost always be competing interests. So it's therefore important to take advice early when faced with an allegation of sexual harassment so that all possible scenarios and consequences are considered when making decisions in relation to such allegations.
0: Parvis, as with all types of employment disputes, employers will often consider entering into a settlement agreement with employees who have raised complaints of sexual harassment. One advantage of this approach is the ability to include confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions in the settlement agreement to avoid the details of alleged harassment being heard in court. However, a recent warning notice for solicitors from the Solicitor's Regulation Authority made it clear that employers should not automatically think that they will be able to gag employees who have made such allegations. That's right, Richard.
1: This is a very important development for all solicitors, including in-house counsel. A failure to comply with the SRA's warning notice will be treated as a breach of the SRA handbook. So, what does the warning notice say? The warning notice sets out that non-disclosure agreements would be improperly used if they were used as a means of preventing or seeking to impede or deter a person from reporting misconduct or a serious breach of regulatory requirements to a regulator, making a protected disclosure under whistleblowing legislation, reporting an offence to a law enforcement agency, and cooperating with a criminal investigation or prosecution. So NDAs would also be improperly used if they were used to, number one, influence the substance of the kind of report just mentioned, number two, improperly threaten litigation or improperly influence an individual to prevent, deter or influence a proper disclosure, or number three, prevent someone who has entered an NDA from keeping or receiving a copy. It's common for settlement agreements to contain a carve-out, making it clear that the employee is not prohibited from making a protected disclosure. What I would suggest that employers should now discuss with their solicitors, when they're looking at settlement agreements, as to whether this carve-out should be extended to cover reporting and disclosing to regulatory bodies or law enforcement agencies, and cooperation with criminal investigations and prosecutions. I think if there is an allegation of sexual harassment, which is going to be the subject of compromise or waiver in the settlement agreement, I think it is worth employers looking at this settlement agreement very carefully and discussing with their solicitors as to whether additional wording and language should be inserted so that their lawyers or the in-house counsel for that fact are not in breach of the SRA handbook.
0: Thanks Parvis and thanks for listening. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and Soundcloud or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website.